1947, eight years after emigrating from England to New York, the poet W.H. Auden wrote the Pulitzer Prize-winning long poem, The Age of Anxiety, which featured four characters of varying backgrounds who meet in a New York City bar during World War II. It was a work that proved to be not only poetic but also prophetic in the sense that the anxiety of that age has not only continued to this present day, but if anything, has deepened. Today, anxiety is the most widespread mental illness in the U.S. It continues to significantly increase. In 2018, even before the pandemic, over 60% of American college students reported feeling overwhelming anxiety at various times. And other studies have shown that on a global scale, anxiety has risen by almost a third since the start of the pandemic. But I don't need to quote to you statistics for you to know the truth of this, do I? Because all of us feel it. We feel it at home. We feel it at work. We feel it with the networks of our friends and family. We feel it when we think about our nation. We feel, uh, feel it when we think about our world. Some of us were probably feeling significant anxiety earlier this week because while Thanksgiving, at least on paper, is a time for celebration and, and happy reunions, the reality is that the dynamics when some of our families get together can be a real stressor. Hopefully you got through that okay, you heaved a sigh of relief, only to then start getting anxious about the next thing on your worry waiting list. Add to that the fact that anxiety has this strange ability to feel contagious. For example, those of you who are parents know only too well that when your parents, your, your children come home from school anxious about something, guess what? You start to feel the anxiety as well. And some of us may deal with all of this better than others, but the sobering truth is that all of us operate at some point on the anxiety spectrum, which means that what we're about to read in a few moments should, have, should be of great interest to all of us. We're currently in the middle of a series on Jesus' Sermon on the Mount as recorded by the Gospel writer Matthew in chapters 5 to 7 of his Gospel. And what we've been seeing each week in this series is that Jesus in this sermon is not telling us what to do in order to enter the kingdom of God, but rather he's telling us what we become by God's grace when his power and his presence come into our lives And Jesus here in this sermon, therefore, is giving us this blueprint for what the flourishing life looks like as a result of him being at the center of our lives. And in today's passage, Jesus wants to show us how living with his power and presence in our lives can radically change the way we deal with anxiety in our lives. And specifically, Jesus is going to lay out for us here what the sermon title refers to as the anxiety opportunity. I borrowed this title from a book that came out earlier this year uh, by a former pastor called Curtis Chang. The book was called The Anxiety Opportunity, and as I hope we're going to see this morning, that title really captures succinctly what Jesus teaches us in this passage, that rather than just trying to pray away or prescribe away our anxiety, we do well to see our anxiety as providing us with one of the most powerful opportunities that we'll encounter in our lives for spiritual growth and transformation. So we're going to think about this under three headings this morning as we work our way through the passage. First of all, a future fear. Secondly, a present focus. 
and thirdly, the extended forecast. A future fear, a present focus, and the extended forecast. But first, let's read the passage together. Uh, you'll find it in the Pew Bibles on page 811. Also, you'll find it on page 10 in your orders of worship, Matthew chapter 6, beginning at verse 25. This is the word of the Lord. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of much more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of, uh, of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. It's the word of the Lord. It's trustworthy, and it's true, and it's given to us in love. Let's pray together. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts be found acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So first, let's think about this future fear. Look again at verse 25 with me. Jesus says, therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Jesus is going to tell us in this passage three times <clears throat> not to be anxious, but right away in this first instruction, not to be anxious, we see something of the dynamics of anxiety. Notice that the examples that Jesus gives of what we might worry about, get anxious about, are all oriented to the future. It's what you will eat. It's what you will drink. It's what you will put on. And that's because anxiety at its core is a fear about the future. All of our anxiety is experienced in the present, but it's always oriented to the future, to tomorrow or to some more distant point in the future. And Jesus makes this explicit right at the end of our passage, verse 34. He says, therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Now, Jesus here isn't talking against planning or making provision for the future. Rather, specifically, it's anxiety about the future that Jesus is speaking about. But based on what we just saw him say in verse 25, we can be even more specific about our definition of anxiety, because anxiety is not just a fear about the future. It's actually a fear of future loss. It's a fear of future loss. For Jesus's original audience, many of whom lived a hand-to-mouth subsistence existence, there was the real possibility that they could lose the very bare necessities of life, like food and drink and clothes. And for most of us, although perhaps not for all of us, in the abundance economy in which we live, those are not the pro losses that primarily concern us. We fear losing other things. We might fear losing our physical health as we get older. We might fear losing our financial security, maybe losing our job, because that could mean that we don't have the resources to pay for our apartment. 
At a deeper level, we fear losing things like our reputation or the respect of others or belonging, a sense of belonging or relationships. So that if you were to take a moment right now just to think about something which is currently causing you anxiety, the underlying question that you need to ask, for whatever worry it is, is what is it that I'm afraid of losing here? Whatever it is that you're afraid of losing hasn't actually happened yet. It's a future conjectural fear because anxiety is always the fear of a future loss. Jesus then hones in further on this future dimension of anxiety to highlight how unproductive such anxiety is. Since we don't know what God holds for us in the future, since we don't have ultimate control over what's going to happen in that future, it's really quite pointless to get anxious about it. Look how Jesus puts this in verse 27. Which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? It's a very valid question, isn't it? Here's how that great theologian Bobby McFerrin put it in his 1988 song, in every life we have some trouble, but when you worry, you make it double. Don't worry, be happy. Now, we might think it's rather simplified, but he's actually right on this point, that when we worry, we double our troubles. If, if what we fear is going to happen in the future doesn't happen, we've worried once for nothing. If it does actually materialize, we've worried twice instead of once. So in both cases, it's unproductive. But while anxiety as the fear of future loss is unproductive, what Jesus wants us to see in this passage is that it can be an opportunity. And that brings us to our second point, a present focus. In Curtis Chang's book that I referenced earlier, he highlights that there are two significant ways that Christians often try to deal with our anxiety, and they both involve trying to basically make it go away. The first way is to prescribe it away. That is to see our anxiety only, only as a mental health problem that we seek to address through medication or through therapy. And Chang underscores that there are, of course, times when such treatment is helpful and necessary. He mentions himself how he's benefited from such treatment in his own dealing with his own anxiety. But he says it has its limitations. Even some professional experts within the mental health field are starting to suggest that treating anxiety solely as a mental health problem is counterproductive. The Wall Street Journal article uh, back in May of last year, 2022, entitled In Praise of Anxiety, Dr. Tracy Dennis uh, Tawari, a leading researcher in mental health, wrote this. She said, as a clinical psychologist and neuroscience researcher, I have devoted the past 20 years to understanding difficult emotions like anxiety, and I believe that we mental health professionals have made a terrible mistake. We've convinced people that anxiety is a dangerous affliction and that the solution is to eliminate it, as we do with other diseases. But feeling anxious isn't the problem. The problem is that we don't understand how to respond constructively to anxiety. That's why it's increasingly hard to know how to feel good, end quote. So we might try to make anxiety go away by simply prescribing it away, but Chang says the second way Christians try to make it go away is just to pray it away. Now, I hope most of you know me well enough by now to know that I'm not going to stand up here and tell you not to pray about your anxiety. Of course, we should pray about our anxiety. Paul tells us in Philippians 4 to do so. 
However, the Bible's view on anxiety is more nuanced than we might think, which should affect, I think, how we pray about it. And that is that the Bible doesn't seem to automatically categorize our anxiety in our lives as this grievous sin for which we should feel guilt and shame, such that the best thing we feel we should do is simply to try to pray it away. For example, consider this verse in the Old Testament in Psalm 139, verse 23. The psalmist says this, search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. So the psalmist invites God to mine the depths of his heart and uncover any anxious thoughts. But then listen to what he says in the next verse, verse 24. He says, see if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. So do you hear what the psalmist is saying here? He, he comes before God, he acknowledges that he has these anxious thoughts, but then he asks God to see if within those anxious thoughts there's anything offensive, anything sinful, anything ungodly. In other words, the anxiety that we feel is really simply part of our created neurophysiological neuro-phys- system. It's a, a God-given signal to us that something in our lives needs addressed. And the psalmist is asking God to highlight for him that in his response to the signal of anxiety, is he responding in a way that honors God or dishonors God? And with that in mind, when we come to Jesus's command to not be anxious in, this, in our passage, we, it's important, therefore, to catch the tone of the command. Jesus isn't seeking to shame or guilt us in the midst of our anxiety. He's speaking in a way where he wants to comfort us and to encourage us and to bring us to a better place. It's not like when Jesus on one occasion spoke to a widow who had lost her only son and who was therefore destitute, and Jesus says to her, don't cry. Jesus wasn't rebuking her for crying. He wasn't saying there's something wrong and sinful with your crying. Rather, he was saying to that distraught mother, I'm here, and I'm going to give you a reason not to cry. And similarly, that's the tone behind Jesus' command for us not to be anxious, not to worry. He's telling us, I'm here. I'm with you. The Father is with you, and we can lead you through your anxieties to a better place so that when we pray about our anxiety, we do well to pray with that assurance in mind rather than simply trying to pray our anxiety away out of a sense of shame or guilt. Now, all of that is to say Jesus' focus here as he addresses our anxiety is not to try to get us to prescribe it away or pray it away. Instead, because he knows that our anxiety is this fear of future loss, he calls on us to shift our focus from the future to the present. And here's the opportunity that anxiety provides for us to move towards new spiritual growth. Jesus invites us on this path of encouraging us to focus on on God's present provision. Look at verses 26 to 30. He says, look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? So Jesus invites us, instead of worryingly fixating on the future, he invites us to become present in the world in which he has placed us, and to observe, and to ponder, and to consider. 
It's so easy to overlook the object lessons that God has placed in his creation all around us, to forget that in the words of the Eastern Orthodox priest Alexander Svemin, that, quote, all that exists is God's gift to us, and it all exists to make God known to us and to make our lives communion with God, end quote. So taking Jesus' examples here in reverse order, Jesus invites us in verse 28 and following to consider the lilies of the field, or as some translate it, the wildflowers. That if God clothes these flowers so resplendently, do you really think that he's not going to much more take care of your clothing? Now, maybe you haven't seen ter- too many wildflowers around the city recently, uh, so maybe just consider the, the splendor and the beauty of the trees in Central Park or elsewhere over recent weeks, and, and consider the, just how they were robed in, in leaves of such magnificent colors, and consider God making the same point there. But the, the important word here that he gives us is consider. That is, Jesus, in the midst of our anxiety, invites us to use our faculties to observe the world around us, to reflect on it, and then to draw the logical conclusion so that when he tells us not to be anxious, he's not telling you to turn your brain off or to turn your emotions off. No, he says when the anxiety comes, when the fear of future loss creeps in, I want you to be present in the world that I've placed you and to consider, to reflect, to think. Anxiety is simply a signal. It's a starting place for this change of focus, this opportunity for spiritual growth. Just prior to his invitation to consider the flowers, Jesus instructs us in verse 26 to, uh, along similar lines to look at the birds. Back in the summer of 2020, uh, one of my wife Tara's friends, Kareen, was helping us with some landscaping and design work in our back garden uh, in our house in Pennsylvania, where we were living at the time. And one of the first days that Kareen was there, there was this bird hopping and flitting around, and she said, oh, look, there's Davis. Now, I have no idea when or why she decided that she would name this particular robin in our garden Davis, but the funny thing is, that when you have a bird in your back garden that now has been christened with a name, you start to pay a lot more attention to it. And so in the mornings after having my first cup of coffee, I'd go and I'd stand at the back window and I'd look for Davis. And sure enough, more often than not, there he was out there. And you know what? It didn't take much in the way of observation to realize that Jesus is absolutely right. I mean, it wasn't that he was lazy. He seemed quite industrious, but he wasn't sowing and he wasn't reaping and he wasn't gathering into barns. And yet our Heavenly Father was feeding him. And as with the lesson of the wildflowers, so Jesus here is doing a a lesser to the greater maneuver in his argument and says to us, just think about it. Aren't you made in the image of God? Aren't you of so much more value than Davis? Don't you know that my present provision for the birds is a reminder to you that I'm going to take care of of your needs now and in the future, so you do not need to be anxious. But Jesus intends this present focus on his provision, on God's provision, through the example of the birds and through the example of the flowers, to take us to a deeper truth. And to get us there, let me quote this short 19th century poem. You may have heard it. Uh, It's inspired by these verses in Matthew 6. It goes like this. Said the robin to the sparrow, I should really like to know, why these anxious human beings rush about and worry so? Said the sparrow to the robin friend, I think that that it must be that they have no heavenly father such as cares for you and me. 
Now, that's quite well put. However, strictly speaking, I want us to see that it's not entirely faithful to what Jesus says here. Because in verse 26, Jesus doesn't actually say that the bird's heavenly father feeds them. He says to his listeners, he says to us, your heavenly father feeds them. That is, God is is just the creator of the birds. But here's the important truth about our present focus that is able to overcome our, our future fear of loss, that to all who put their full trust in this God of provision, he is our heavenly father. And it's really at this point where we see that Jesus presents essentially two choices that we have as we seek to address our anxiety. At the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus basically shows that so much of this sermon is about a choice between two ways, so that in his conclusion, he talks about how there are two paths, one that leads to life, one leads to destruction. There are two trees, one that has good fruit, one has bad fruit. There are two houses, one built on a good foundation, one built on a bad foundation. And here in Matthew 6, anxiety is just the starting point. It's the signal. It's the opportunity. But there are two contrasting postures portrayed here. If you look at verses 31 and 32, Jesus says, Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. And you see the two paths here? He says the Gentiles, or some translations say the pagans, that is the unbelievers, think that the answer to their anxiety has to do with the assurance of more stuff, promises of a more secure future as it pertains to to things, what they will eat, what they will drink, what they will wear. But look what Jesus does here. He says there's another path, the other path, the way of life, the way of flourishing when it comes to dealing with our anxiety is not about a what, it's about a who. The Gentiles seek after all these things, lots of what's, and your heavenly Father, the who, knows that you need them all. The entirety of our lives, we are not promised anything by Jesus regarding the what, other than our needs. But Jesus here reminds us that the infinitely most important promise is that for those who trust their lives with Jesus, we have a Father who cares for us, who sees us, who knows us, who loves us. That God's answer to your anxiety is not the assurance of more what whether that's a promised success or recognition and status or a limited amount of failure or a guaranteed absence of loss. No, God's answer to your anxiety is himself, that he's to be our ultimate focus here. And that brings us lastly to our last third point, the extended forecast. Look at verse 33 again. He says, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. The way that we'll demonstrate that our ultimate focus, present focus, is on God in the midst of our anxiety is that in contrast to the pagans seeking after the what, we are those who seek the who. We are the ones who seek God, who is our Heavenly Father, who seek His kingdom and His righteousness, knowing that as we do, He has promised that He will take care of all of our needs. But this verse actually essentially brings us all the way back full circle and back to the most important word in this passage, which we haven't actually even mentioned yet, and it's the word at the very beginning of the passage, it's the word therefore. 
Anytime you see a therefore, you've got to ask what it's there for. And here in Matthew 6, here's what this therefore is there for. It connects this week's passage about not being anxious about life, about focusing on God and His present provision, about seeking first God's kingdom. It connects all of that to last week's passage that Jason preached on about our true treasure. Why should we seek God's kingdom before anything else? Why do we not need to be anxious why do we not to need, need to fear any future loss in this life? It is because, as we saw last week, for those who trust in him, Jesus is our true treasure. He is our treasure. The Apostle Paul, writing in his letter to the Philippians, provides us with his ultimate antidote to anxiety in what he expresses what we might call his definition of life. It comes in Philippians 1.21, and it goes like this. He says, to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. For Paul, everything in his life was about Jesus, following Jesus, trusting Jesus, loving Jesus, enjoying Jesus. Why? Because Jesus was Paul's treasure. And for Paul, therefore, because Jesus was his treasure, even death was not a loss to be feared, because death actually was a gain. But death is only gain if your ultimate treasure is Jesus. That is, if you put anything else in the first half of Paul's definition of life, you have to change the second part. If to you to live is money, or to you to live is your career, or to you to live is your family, or to you to live is your health, then to die is loss. You lose it. So much of this life is about loss. Jesus is not denying that at all here, but he says, I don't want you to worry about it. I don't want you to be anxious about it, because in the end, it's not about the what, it's about the who. It's about me. And in the end, if to you to live is Christ, then to die is gain, because you are brought into the very presence of the one whom you have treasured with your life. Now, the question is, what basis does Paul have to make such a radical claim and assurance that even death will be gained for him. Gospel writer Luke tells us that in the Garden of Gethsemane, as Jesus was shown by the Father while Jesus was in prayer, what he would face the next day on the cross as he took the punishment for our sin, Luke tells us that Jesus began to sweat, and his sweat was mixed with blood. And I'm no medical expert, but those who are will tell us that while it is unusual, it is possible for blood to seep out of your pores together with your sweat when you are in a state of severe shock, heightened anxiety. And so it was for Jesus, that even with Jesus, the body kept the score. And so Jesus prayed to the Father, if there is any way for us to save these people, any way for us to rescue these people from their sin. Now would be a great time for you to tell me what plan B is. But there was no plan B. And so Jesus switches his focus from the future loss of his life that he knows is coming the next day to a present focus on his Father and his will, and he prays, yet not my will, but yours be done. And the next day he goes to the cross and he loses his life. More than that, he, as he bears the weight of our sin, the penalty for our sin, he loses the sense of his Father's loving face for the first time in eternity, but he loses it so that no matter 
what losses you and I might face in this life, we do not need to be anxious. Because through Jesus and his death for us on the cross, through his death-defeating resurrection, we are assured of never losing that which is most important, which is the love and care of our Heavenly Father. To me, to live is Christ, and therefore to die is not loss but gain. Because when Jesus is your treasure, even death is gain. And when you put last week's passage, therefore, together with this week's passage, and you realize that this life of flourishing is not about seeking the what, but seeking the who, and when you seek the who, when you pursue God and his kingdom above everything else, it it does, putting the two passages together, it does completely relativize your attitude to stuff, to the what of life, to possessions and money. And that makes sense because, as Jesus said in last week's passage, You can't love them both. You can't love God and money all at the same time. You can't say to me to live is Christ while your life is saying to me to live actually is my money. And so in light of that, and in light, as as Chris mentioned earlier, this Tuesday being Giving Tuesday, let let me uh, close with a a story. It's a story told by my old preaching professor, Haddon Robinson. Haddon actually was born and grew up in Harlem here. The story is set in New York City, but before I tell it, a quick disclaimer. Some of you, I imagine, are cat lovers. I've had my fair share of cats over the years, and a a few of them, the relationship was a little complicated. That's a story for another time, but in general, I like cats, so I want you to know this is not an anti-cat story, and I can assure you that no cats were harmed in the recording of this story. The story goes like this. A man in New York City had a wife who had a cat. Actually, the cat had her. She loved the cat. She stroked it. She combed its fur. She pampered it. The man hated the cat. He was allergic to cat hair. He hated the smell of the litter box. He couldn't stand the scratching on the furniture. He couldn't get a good night's sleep because the cat kept jumping up on the bed. And so when his wife went out of town one weekend, he put the cat in a bag with some rocks. He dumped it in the Hudson, and he uttered a joyful goodbye to the cat. When his wife returned and could not find her cat, she was overwhelmed with grief, and her husband said, look, dear, I know how much that cat meant to you. I'm going to put an ad in the paper and give a reward of $1,000 to anyone who finds the cat. Well, no cat shows up, and so a few days later, he said, honey, you mean more to me than anything else in this world. If that cat is precious to you, it's precious to me as well. I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll buy another ad and we'll raise the ante, we'll increase the reward to $5,000. Well, a friend of his sees the ad, he comes to him and says, you must be absolutely nuts. There isn't a cat in this world that is worth $5,000. To which the man replied, well, when you know what I know, you can afford to be generous. (laughs) Friends, when you and I know what we know, When you and I know who we know, when we know Jesus, who is our true treasure, we can afford not only not to be anxious, but to be radically generous. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your teaching throughout this sermon, but not least in this passage, and for your reminder that with you in our lives, with our Heavenly Father taking care of us, that there is Uh, no need for us to be anxious, but that when we do experience anxiety, that you invite us to turn to you, to look to your provision for us in this world, to look to your assurances to us of your presence. We thank you, Jesus, that you are our ultimate treasure, 
And we pray that as we now come to this table, you would remind us of that, not only through the words that we have heard, but now through this meal that we share. For we ask this in your name, Jesus. Amen.